Hello and welcome to Ocean Matters from the Bertarelli Foundation. I'm Helen Chersky. The blue of our blue planet is Earth's defining feature, but we don't generally hear much about what's going on beneath the surface. We're missing out, and not just on the fascinating ways that life has adapted to a watery world, or the immensity of the ocean engine that keeps our planetary systems running. What we're missing out on is the perspective that we are inhabitants of an ocean world, and everything that happens down there is linked to us up here. And that's what this podcast series is all about. What are the visual images that you associate with the ocean? Is it a photo of a leaping dolphin or a beautiful reef fish, or perhaps a dramatic stormy sea surface? Those are all amazing possibilities and some of my favourites, but the images that have grabbed public attention in the past few years have been very different, very important, but also very sad. I'm thinking of beaches covered in abandoned rubbish, a turtle suffocating in a discarded fishing net, the stomach of a dead seabird, which is full of plastic. So often the ocean's problems are invisible, but the plastic pollution in the ocean has rocketed up public consciousness in the past few years, precisely because it's so visible and so is the damage it does. Once you start looking, it's everywhere. So today we're going to be talking about plastic in our ocean. When it was first invented, plastic was legitimately seen as a wonder material. Plastics are polymers, long chain molecules that are made up of lots of identical repeating units. They're easy to shape, easy to clean, come in multiple colours and they're hugely versatile and robust. But there lies the problem. They don't break down because the natural world lacks the tools to decompose them. Once the plastic is made, we're stuck with it. And although plastic has many essential uses, our enthusiasm for it has arguably gone too far. 40% of the plastics manufactured every year will only be used once, and then they're on a one-way conveyor belt to somewhere. And that somewhere is often nature. It's estimated that 19 to 23 million tonnes, that's 11% of all the plastic waste generated globally in 2016, was swept into our waters. And so our waters are becoming a dilute soup of plastic, both larger items and also the tiny bits left behind as those bigger bits break up or wear down. Those are called microplastics and their small size means they get everywhere. In this episode, we're going to be looking at what we know and what we don't know about plastic pollution in the ocean and its impacts. It is a grim story, but we also have some optimism to share on how we might deal with this problem in the future and also what you can do to help. What we don't know is how embedded plastic is becoming in our natural environment and what effect that might have long term. What we want to do here is try and create solutions for recycling that means the plastic is worth so much to those companies that they're incentivized to collect it in the first place so it doesn't end up in the ocean. We really need to turn off that flow of material into the ocean in the first place. Scientists from the Bertarelli Foundation's marine science programme are always on the lookout for plastics in the Chagos archipelago in order to understand the impact it's having on the wildlife there. Professor Heather Coldaway manages the programme and visited the region last year. And despite being largely uninhabited and isolated in the middle of the Indian Ocean, she still finds plastic washing up on the shores. 
I'm here on Ilderats on Egmont Atoll, hiding under a palm tree because it's pouring with rain. I'm here today surveying plastics on this island. Last year, a group of volunteers completely cleaned one beach on this island, a particularly important nesting site for turtles. And we're documenting how quickly plastic comes in from other parts of the ocean and lands on this beach. Unfortunately, there's already a lot of plastic here, so we can already see flip-flops, polystyrene, bottles, lots of cigarette lighters, bigger buckets and cartons, discarded fishing gear, and really random items that are hard to identify. So many flip-flops, just where I'm standing under this tree, I can count 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and a tiny pink one. That's 14 flip-flops just in immediate line of sight, and there's not a single pair among them. It is a depressing story, but one of our best tools for understanding and fixing the problem is data, especially when it's shared so everyone can contribute to and study it. Scientists like Heather use an app called Debris Tracker to log the plastic found, and it's also open to citizen scientists. So if you would like to log marine debris of any type on the shore near you, you can pitch in too. The Debris Tracker app is available on the Apple Store and Google Play for you to help expand this shared global database. And we'll also include a link in the episode description. So what's the impact of the plastics that wash up on the Chagos Archipelago and around the world? I had a chat to Rachel Jones about this. She's from the Zoological Society of London and the Bertorelli Foundation's Marine Science Programme. What we do know is that there's little to no local input of plastic, so that makes it a very interesting site. We know that the plastic that's on the beaches is almost all certainly has come from somewhere else in the world. And we see consistently around 86% of the beach debris is plastic, and almost all of it falls into three categories, and that's what we call foam, so polystyrene or styrofoam, flip-flops, and plastic bottles, mainly water bottles. So those three categories alone account for the vast majority of the plastic we see. It's astonishing that flip-flops alone are a whole category. I mean, we're used to thinking about plastic bottles because there's bottles everywhere. But I hadn't thought about there being flip-flops everywhere. What are the flip-flops doing there? Yeah, and it's something that is one of the first things that struck me when I was there in 2006 for the first time. I, I remember walking along a beach and just seeing dozens and dozens and dozens of single flip-flops of every colour and every shape. And you just think, you know, for a place that is 500 kilometres from the nearest beach tourism, that's a really amazing sight to see. And where have they all come from and who did they belong to and which countries did they did they come from? And you can imagine them staying at sea for months, maybe years. The water bottles, in contrast, tell us a great deal more about where they're from and perhaps how they got there. So they're a very interesting study item for us. So what have you found on from the labels of the bottle? I guess you have to perhaps read a lot of languages in order to understand what they're saying. You do. And the top three are the Maldives, which is the next nearest place. Indonesia, which isn't surprising because that's upstream of prevailing currents for much of the year and is also one of the biggest contributors to ocean plastic. And then China, which is interesting because that's quite a bit further away in terms of the journey of a floating bottle. But it raises the intriguing prospect 
that that's perhaps not how that bottle got there. If you look at the cargo superhighway of ships that, that passes diagonally across the Indian Ocean, many of those cargo vessels are Chinese. So that could very easily be a source of many of these water bottles if they're coming off cargo ships rather than having floated all the way from the coast of China. So that's something we're very interested in exploring a bit more. All right, so there's this plastic washing up on the beaches. What do we know about the effects that the plastic has, perhaps both on the beach but also in the water column? It's everywhere and it's in everything. We're very interested in the relationship between plastics in the environment and sea turtles. Particularly uh, in the Chagos Archipelago, it's an incredibly important location regionally, indeed globally, for sea turtles because a huge number of both green and hawksbill turtles nest on the beaches there up to half of the Western Indian Ocean population of hawksbill turtles, which is critically endangered and nesting in this one archipelago. What we're interested in looking at is what is the effect of plastic on turtles, both as they're digging their nests down through the beach, are they encountering macroplastics that are impeding their efforts, but then also what effects do those plastics have on the environment in the nest that might determine how successful the nest is, uh, how many hatchlings it produces, but also what the sex ratio is of those hatchlings. They have this fascinating biological feature that the ratio of males to females isn't decided actually when the egg comes out of the turtle. Tell us a little bit about how the sex ratio is decided in a turtle and why it is that microplastic in sand might affect that. So the hypothesis is that very small pieces of plastic, microplastic, go down through the sand column all the way down to the depth where the turtles are excavating their nest pits and that that might affect the temperature of the sand. The plastic is very much better at conducting heat than the sand particles. There's quite a narrow window in which turtle eggs will incubate between around 25 to 35 degrees C where they're most successful. If you get hotter than 29 degrees C, you're going to get female hatchlings and cooler than that, you're going to get male hatchlings. It, it's not an on-off switch. It's, you know, it's a graded change from one to the other. But certainly at cooler temperatures, you will get more males than females. And the, the nests are cool enough to be hatching a large proportion of male hatchlings in the Chagos Archipelago. And that's unusual globally, where many turtle nests are now getting so warm that they're hatching majority female you know, you're talking about tiny pieces of plastic, some of which might be the same size or smaller as a grain of sand. Is there any way to clean that up? Can you just remove the big bits? And even then, there's a lot of beach, right? Is it? And there's a lot, you know, there's presumably plastic washing up on a regular basis. Is there any practical possibility of cleaning this up? No, we can't remove pieces of microplastic down through the sand column. That's that's just not possible. But we know that the microplastic comes from somewhere um, and it could very well be breaking down from macroplastics. So by removing macroplastics from the equation, that could help to then reduce the amount of smaller plastic coming in. And let's zoom back out to the, the whole of the pr plastics problem. You know, I think most industrialised countries and many that aren't have worked out that there is there is something that needs sorting out here. How do you feel about the future? Are you optimistic or pessimistic about what might happen next? I think I've got a degree of optimism about this one. You know, I think about the hole in the ozone layer and acid rain and these, these problems which were met as technical challenges by industry and really tackled in quite a pragmatic way in within human lifetimes. And I, I sort of see that in, in much the same way. What we don't know is how embedded plastic is becoming in our natural environment and what effect that might have long term. 
But I have a great deal of optimism about the the scale of the technical and engineering minds that are, are involved in trying to solve this. There's a huge amount of effort and potentially reward as well in, in getting this one right. So I, I do feel like this is a problem that can be solved and that there's there's a lot of impetus behind solving it. Rachel Jones from the Zoological Society of London. And you can find out more about Rachel's work on the Bertarelli Foundation's website, marine.science. We all have a role to play in reducing the flood of plastic from our civilization. It's not just an issue for coastal communities to deal with when the plastic washes up. The actual solution is to stop it ever going in. You buy perhaps an individual bottle of fruit juice from a grocery shop. You drink the juice and then you have a bottle. In an ideal world, perhaps you'd put that in a recycling bin and it would definitely be recycled. But this isn't an ideal world, so the rubbish dump or the local river are also serious contenders. Anything that blows into a river is likely to get carried on into the estuary and then into the open ocean. But the one less project in London is trying to stop this from happening. Scientists are working with volunteers and local businesses to tackle ocean plastic pollution at source, starting with monitoring the Thames estuary. When the project started in 2016, Londoners bought over a billion single-use plastic water bottles every year, with many of these making their way into the Thames and potentially flowing out to the ocean. I met with ocean conservationist and one of the co-founders of One Less, Fiona Llewellyn, on the busy foreshore of the Thames Estuary in central London to find out more about their work. Um, So this is one of the five sites that we're monitoring as part of our Thames Bottle Monitoring Programme. So we're really focused on the volume of bottles here and we're tracking them over time to figure out what the trends are, how many bottles are are in the Thames at any one time, are they increasing and are they decreasing? And from that information, we can try and figure out how best to implement our project and to reduce the amount of litter that goes into the Thames. People might not think that there's that much plastic around here. Tell us a little bit about the problem. Yes, so ocean plastic and riverine plastic is a huge problem globally. The latest estimates suggest that around 11 million metric tonnes of plastic is entering the ocean every year. We know that about 80% of that plastic is coming in from land-based sources and rivers contribute to part of that as well. When you look across the river here, I mean, you can see the odd item, the odd macro item, something that you can spot from far away. The trouble is as well, when you get closer and start investigating uh, what is here on the foreshore and then what we think is in the body of the Thames as well there is a huge amount of plastic a huge amount of what we call microplastic and then smaller than that the nanoplastics as well and this it's an interesting thing here that in the estuary here the tide moves these things around and we can see now the things that were brought up by the last tide but they might get carried up the river as well as down the river right yes that's one of the, the sort of the research questions that we have here along the Thames how is the plastic being moved around and actually the bottle data that we're collecting is a key part of that because we can see how much plastic is, is on each of the sites at each time we're monitoring these sites every fortnight and we have been doing so for for the last sort of four years and so we've got a good handle on what's washing up on the foreshores it is moving around it's a very dynamic environment here one of the things that we're going to be doing with the data that we've collected so far going forward is to generate a model if you like of the movement of bottles in the Thames so that we can really start to get an understanding of how the bottles are moving in the Thames and importantly for us and for the work that we're doing in terms of ocean plastic how much of the plastic is making its way out of the estuary and into the ocean. 
Well, so tell me just a little bit about the monitoring, then maybe we can have a dig into some of the things that you find. What would you actually do when you come out monitoring? So each fortnight, citizen scientists will come down onto the foreshore of each of the five sites that we have along the Thames here, and they will walk along a predefined area, and they will count all of the bottles that they encounter. After they've counted the bottles, they will categorise them. So we have single-use plastic water bottles, single-use beverage bottles, which will be the other kind of beverages, fizzy drinks, orange juice, things like that. And then the last one is milk bottles. We also have a big category, unfortunately, as you can imagine, the state of some of these bottles, which is unknown or uncategorised. So unfortunately, many of the bottles that we stumble across are in such a state that it's difficult to determine whether they were once fizzy drink bottle or, or a water bottle. Well, maybe it's time to have a dig around. Because as you've been talking, I've been looking, I've been looking around my feet to see what I can find. So maybe let's have a dig around and, and see what we can find here. Yeah, let's go for it. Well, we've, we've come down the foreshore a little bit. So we're looking at a particularly nasty pile of bottles and things all piled up in the corner here where they've all sort of accumulated. Where might those end up? Well, so, I mean, th- these ones, it is a pretty disgusting pile, it's isn't, horrid, it? isn't it? <laughs> and a lot of that stuff there looks like it's been there for a very long time. So I think where we are at the moment, we can obviously see that these items are being trapped. I mean, we've got bottles and tennis balls. and tyres in there. Oh, there's a lot of different sorts. types of bottle. Yes. And it's just generally very icky. And the thing is that that is just the bit... Oh, there's a bit of traffic cone down there <laughs> and a wine bottle. Yeah. There's a lot of caps around here, bottle caps. Yes. In fact, that's very striking because there are a lot of bottle caps compared with everything else. That is right. And that's why it's really interesting and important that we categorise, you know, bottles and bottle caps separately because quite often they are separated. However, one of the really interesting things, when we first started this work, we had a a master's student. He found that over 93% of the bottles that he found on the five sites uh, along the Thames here had their bottle lids on them which is very interesting when you think about how many bottle lids we see. So this gives us a suggestion that perhaps the volume of bottles within the Thames itself that's perhaps sunk to the riverbed is a lot more than we're seeing washing up on the foreshore. Because as you can imagine, when the bottle's got its lid on, it's far more buoyant and it's far more likely to move around and be washed up on on the foreshore as the tide retreats. So, So you're monitoring volunteers and staff come down here, they look at all of this, they pick things up and what happens next? So with the Thames Bottle Monitoring Programme, it's all about the bottles. So they will, they'll count and categorise the bottles, but once they've finished doing all the counting and the data collection, they then collect all the bottles using gloves. You wouldn't want to be picking them up along here without gloves, that's for sure. They bag them up and then they are recycled. What's the big picture for the future? I often think that one of the difficulties humans have is that they don't see us as part of the planet. And if you look at the way the rest of the planet works, energy flows through and stuff goes round and round. And we have sort of not picked up on that. Nature's probably got a good system going on if we want to join that system what is the plan for the future what's your what's the one less vision of the future so uh, the one less vision of the future is we want to see a city that no longer needs or wants to use single-use plastic water bottles and instead we go about our day-to-day lives using the tap water the drinking fountains the refill points that are available to us and using a reusable bottle to do so we need a serious serious reduction in the amount of single-use plastic that's being produced but we also need to recognize other solutions as well where that's not possible and where we do need single-use plastic items whether they be for medical reasons or, or really other valid reasons then we need to design them in a way where they can be recaptured rematerialized into the same product again and again and, and really hone into that circular economy approach that we're seeing to sort of spring up in research institutes all around the world which is a great thing 
Clearing the banks of single-use plastic bottles is one step in the right direction, but there is much more plastic out there. And it's all of different types and different sizes, a massive mountain of really complicated rubbish. But waste material is generated in nature all the time, like the bones of dead animals and fallen trees and autumn leaves. Can we learn anything from the way that nature solves the problem of waste? After all, decay is just recycling, and in pushing the boundaries to find innovative solutions for the global plastics challenge, some scientists are considering copying this system. Perhaps a solution to this incredibly modern problem is the oldest trick in nature's book. This is all about enzymes. They're made by bacteria, among lots of other things, and they can either make things or break things. If you use a biological washing powder, for example, it contains enzymes that help break down grass stains or food stains. But could they break down our plastic problem? I spoke with enzyme expert Professor John McGeehan at the University of Portsmouth, who's been able to speed up a natural process that was first discovered by a team in Japan. So we've been working on enzymes for, for several decades. When a paper came along in 2016 from a Japanese group where they did this very interesting experiment, scraping around in the soil and wastewater runoff of a recycling plant in Japan, where they'd discovered a bacterium that could actually digest plastic through enzymes. We thought, goodness, you know, we've got the team here, we've got the expertise and the equipment. We should definitely turn our attention to enzymes that can break down man-made polymers like plastics. And how unusual is that in nature, you know, to find an enzyme that might break down plastic or is it just something, is it the sort of problem that nature would solve at some point? Well, that's a great question. And of course, nature has this incredible capacity to evolve and change and, and you know, actually come up with its own solutions. The problem with the plastic pollution problem is that so much material has gone into the environment, billions of tonnes in a very short space of time, particularly over the last few years and the last 50 years. So evolution hasn't really had a chance to catch up. And once we were able to compare it to all the other enzymes there, and, you know, initially, I would say rather disappointing it looked exactly the same as this enzyme that eats plant leaves. And I was like, oh my goodness, you know, I thought it would look really different because it eats plastic. So if you look at green leaves, for example, they're covered in this waxy coating and that's really sort of a natural polyester. It's got the same bonds holding it together as plastic has. So rather than accommodating the plant type polyesters, they can now accommodate man-made type polyesters. So you can see actually nature can evolve rather quickly when it has a lot of material to, to deal with. So let's get on to what happens. These bacteria produce this enzyme, they meet a piece of plastic. What happens next? Is anything left over? What, what's there at the end? So basically, if you imagine uh, the process, so you still need to get the plastic into a recycling uh, facility. That's the first thing. You can't just spray enzymes on the ocean. Unfortunately, it's too dilute. But once you get those plastics in a big vat and you pour in the powdered enzyme and you stir it for, for hours or days, what happens is those enzymes start breaking the bonds apart and the plastic will start dissolving into a clear solution that contains these building blocks called monomers. You can reuse them to make new plastic as good quality or even better than the, than the virgin material. Or you could potentially add new monomers to that mixture and make higher value materials, maybe like fiberglass for wind turbine blades or carbon fiber for, for car parts. 
And I think that's that's a really exciting part of this process because we think that enzymes can complete the circle and actually take that plastic waste and turn it back into usable plastic of really high value that will really push forward this circular economy. So the idea here is that the enzymes get to it, they break it down into the building blocks and then you can build those up again into the next thing. And so you don't need any new oil, you don't need any new feedstock. Is, is, that, is that really what we're suggesting here? Absolutely true. We turn off the fossil fuel taps for plastic. We absolutely don't need them. We've got more plastic up here on the surface than we know what to do with. It saves about up to 70% energy and 40% greenhouse gases. This is really, really important. And I think those are the sort of numbers that will drive the economics forward too. And how complicated is this? So say I put something in the plastics recycling where I live and that gets taken to a recycling plant and that recycling plant has all kinds of things it's got all kinds of plastics so can your enzyme deal with all those plastics what how complicated is the process to actually make this work so one of the things that recycling companies really have to deal with at the moment, and it's really tough, is the mixture of plastics out there. There's hun several hundred types of common plastics. The main ones are, are like PET, the single-use bottles, but that's only maybe 20% of the plastic out there. The other big ones, polypropylene, the harder plastics, polyethylene, plastic bags. So we need different enzymes for different plastics. That's a real focus of our group at, at the moment, to go out there into nature and hunt for those things particularly in the ocean environment as well where, where there is so much plastic but I think compared to other technologies certainly the economics of the systems and the energy savings make it look as this this might be a really good way forward it won't be the solution for all plastics and we're going to still need to do some other chemical or thermal technologies for some of the harder plastics I'm sure and I'm actually sure the biggest moves forward in the field will be a combination of techniques and, and getting people to work together on this. And how quickly, when you're in the process for using this stuff in, in perhaps an industrial process, how long does it take for the, these enzymes to turn a vat full of bottles into grey goo that can be reused? Yes, it's a good question. And in our lab, you can see lots of plastic bottles being digested all over the place. It's, it's quite exciting a place to be at the moment. But uh, there's a company called Carbios in, in France. They can digest plastic bottles in around 10 hours. And actually, the really exciting thing there is they've got investment from some big multinationals to build the first full-scale demonstration plant that will take maybe 50,000 tonnes of PET waste per year and use enzymes to break it down to monomers for reuse. So it's actually happening now, and that's really exciting. In fact, enzyme technologies are very mature because we've been using them in the food industry and in the pharma industry for, for many, many years. So scaling it up is actually quite, quite straightforward. And so do a bit of gazing into your crystal ball for me. Let's, let's say that, you know, you managed to scale this up. What would the world look like when it comes to dealing with plastic if this technology really realizes its potential? I believe that people will treat plastic differently, will have a better relationship with it, will understand that it has intrinsic value and it won't be used once and thrown away. What we want to do here is try and create solutions for recycling that means the plastic is worth so much to those companies that they're incentivized to collect it in the first place so it doesn't end up in the ocean. We really need to turn off that flow of material into the ocean in the first place because it seems to be increasing rather than leveling off at the moment. But the other thing is, 
uh, the ocean's an incredibly undiscovered place. And some of our enzymes that we're looking at already come from hydrothermal vents deep in the ocean. So there's lots of things out there that may be worth looking at working with scientists who are out in the field to people like me who are in lab coats and labs and then working with industries is really the way forward. I think we can learn so much more from, from the ocean and from nature. It's really easy to feel overwhelmed by the scale of this problem. We can't magically vacuum the ocean clean of all the plastic that's already in there. It's too much, too small and too well hidden in ocean ecosystems. But we absolutely can face up to this problem now and stop it getting worse. We do know exactly what the problem is because we're causing it and our knowledge is increasing all the time. Nature might give us a helping hand with some enzymes, but that by itself is not going to fix this. It's up to us to rebuild the system we've created when it comes to plastic. Sure, you know, we'll have to change a few habits, but they're new habits anyway. Our throwaway society is such a modern creation. The key is to see ourselves as part of our planet, not separate to it. We're such a flexible, adaptable, creative species, we can totally do this. So carry your own water bottle, refuse unnecessary plastic packaging, make a fuss to the companies who are slow to change, and let's get a move on and fix this. Thank you to Professor Heather Coldaway, Rachel Jones, Fiona Llewellyn, and Professor John McGeehan. Next time on Ocean Matters, we'll be exploring our deep sea. What's hiding there? And why do we need to protect it? I'm Helen Chersky, and Ocean Matters is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. If you have a moment, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe now so you never miss an episode.